The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, and verse number 27. 1 Corinthians is perhaps the Bible's premier chapter on church membership, describing the church as the body of Christ and that we are members of his body. And this is what verse number 27 says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. In our study of the Baptist acrostic, we're now on the uh, sixth letter, which is the letter S, which stands for saved church membership. Now, the emphasis is on saved, which is the same as saying that we believe that the church is composed of people that are born again, they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and these are the only ones that are, that are candidates for church membership. To us, that seems only obvious, too obvious. We wonder why do we even talk about such things. The church is the body of Christ, so how could the members of the body of Christ be anything but those who have been saved by the blood of Christ, those who are redeemed and blood-bought children of God? First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul wrote, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? And that chapter discusses the unreasonableness of Christians living in a lifestyle of sin. That the body of Christ cannot be joined with sin. And so how unruly would it be to take those that aren't saved, that are still in their sins, and to make them the members of the church, of the body of Christ? Well, that is an impossible thing to do. So you think, well, why is there an argument over this? Why do we even discuss it? Well, there wouldn't be a discussion if there wasn't confusion over what the church is. Now, we, we've talked about this quite a bit. You might think that I talk about it too much. The problem is that we have overlapping studies on Wednesday night and on the Sunday nights, and we're talking about the church uh, right now in both of those studies. And so you hear a lot about the church and... Uh, the subject has come up often, and the church as the body of Christ is a very important issue to us. I'm not sure that we can talk about it too much, but because there is so much confusion over the doctrine of the church and wrong views about the church, if you're wrong about the definition of the church, then you're going to run into all different sorts of doctrinal quandaries. It's one of those things that's a domino effect. You get this wrong, and there are a lot of things that you get wrong after it. So you have to get the, the definition of the church right. So what most people do is they accept the universal invisible church as being what the church is with a local visible manifestation. And they say that the local church and the universal church are two different things, that being part of one is not necessarily to be a part of the other. To be in the universal invisible church means that you receive Christ by repentance and faith and you're joined to that body through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's an automatic action. Once you believe, this is what happens. You become a member of this universal invisible body. But membership in the local church is a different thing. Adults must make application to it 
Children need not apply. It's not necessary for them. For if they have been baptized into the church by infant baptism, then they're made a part of the covenant community. So they're brought in by that method. And so in that case, a person could be a member of the church without actually placing their faith in Jesus Christ and therefore being an unregenerate church member. So they say then that the visible church is made up of both wheat and tares. You understand what I'm saying? You know what I mean by that? The visible church is made up of wheat and tares, which would be saved and unsaved people. Now, ideally, of course, what would happen is that the children of believers become believers. At some point, they will, hopefully, but sometimes they don't. Many times they don't. And in these churches that accept infant baptism, then you have church members that aren't saved, yet without full church privileges. I don't find that in the Bible. I haven't ever seen that in the Bible. That's why Baptists don't believe it. And so we say that a person could not be anything, could not be in the church unless he is saved, unless he has recognized Christ as the Savior and believed in him a cognizant faith. And since we believe that baptism is the door into the church, and only those with credo-baptism can become members of the church, then the S in the acrostic would naturally importantly, rule out or exclude infant baptism. So the S, then, is about being saved. You can't get into the Lord's church without being saved. And Baptists have always believed that. So becoming a member of the church, then, again, is a decision of a fully cognizant person who recognizes his need of repentance and faith, and then further that he needs baptism in order for membership. Now, what we're doing in this part of the study is expanding on this thought of a regenerate church membership to speak on the issue of church membership itself. What is that all about? Now, the Bible teaches church membership, even though there are some churches that really don't have members, not, not least not in the same way that we do, that if you attend a church, then you are a member of that church. A few years ago, I was surprised when I talked to a lady who had been attending here for a while. I didn't know her, but she had attended for a while, and I hadn't had a chance to sit down with her and to discuss anything with her. So one day that opportunity came, and so we just had a chat for a few minutes. And I said, well, you've been com coming to Berean for a little while now. Uh, what church are you a member of? And she looked at me very surprised, and she said, Why, well, I'm a member of your church. Well, she thought that attendance was good enough. That's all you need to do to be a member of the church. Now, I'll tell you this. If attendance is good for membership, there may be a few of you that aren't actually members of the church uh, because it takes attendance to get in. But in any case, to become a member of the church takes more action than attending we're speaking on the subject of a saved church membership to explain what the Bible teaches about church membership in general and what Baptists believe about it. So we started the subject last week and we began with association in membership. That the Bible teaches that Christians are to associate themselves in groups that are called churches. Now, this was two weeks ago. Actually, Jason preached last week, so we didn't talk about it then. But two weeks ago, we showed you how the Bible says that Christians are to associate themselves in groups that are called churches. The word church means an assembly. People have to get together in order to have a church. 
Now, we look at the book of Acts, and Acts is the history of the church growing uh, in the first century. Church growth is the focus. Evangelism is the focus. And taking people that are saved and gathering together and starting churches in the localities where these different people have been converted to Christ. Now, the New Testament epistles are letters of instruction to churches, uh, people in churches. Sometimes those letters will be to the entire membership of the church. At other times, Paul and some wrote to uh, individuals in the church, like Paul wrote to Timothy. But even those letters are for the good of the church. The church is an assumption there, and that's what the letters are for, to help the church. The letter to the Hebrews has a very important instruction in it, where it says, we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And in Acts 2, we see that people are saved and they're baptized, and it says they are added to the church, and they continue to meet in the fellowship of the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. So the order is always this, saved, baptized, added to the church. There is no Christian in the New Testament that is considered to be a Christian without baptism. There is no thought that a Christian would not be baptized. And since baptism is a church ordinance, there is no thought that a Christian would not be a church member. That comes naturally in the New Testament. Now, the Lord's church then is preserved by the addition of members. This is how we survive. We keep bringing in people, evangelizing people, bringing them into the church. And this is why it makes no sense for a ministry to talk about all the people that they've won to Christ. The great numbers of people that they've, they're soul winners and they've won people to Christ, but they never assimilate them into the fellowship of the church. That is not the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The fulfillment of the commission is to teach people the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, baptize them, and then teach them to observe all things that Christ has commanded. And their chief among those is membership in the Lord's church. So if you're going to have them saved, you're going to have them baptized, they're going to be members of the Lord's church. That's how you preserve the church. So we are in the fellowship of the gospel. The next thing that we looked at was qualifications for membership. The acrostic tells us that a person must be saved. It emphasizes regeneration. I explained just a little bit about the difference between regeneration and salvation, but those two doctrines are not the main focus of the lesson, so we won't go on with that. Regeneration, I'll just say this much about it, regeneration always, always without fail leads to salvation. And as it does, a person will confess Christ. A person that is regenerated then becomes a confessed believer. And we have to have that confession or else we don't have a way of knowing if that person is actually saved. And so a person that doesn't confess Christ is considered to be an unbeliever. And that's why the church, uh, a, a person couldn't be a member of the church and be a secret disciple. There has to be some realization that he is actually a believer in Christ. The next thing we talked about was holiness. That membership requires personal holiness. We're told to keep sin out of the church. And when sin does creep into the church, then we're told to get rid of it. That's because sin causes division. Sin hurts the body of Christ. And so what we, we hate to do it, but it's better for us to cut one member out of the body than it is to let the sin of that person infect the whole church. 
It's exactly what Paul meant when he said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so we have a disciplinary process that we have to go through. We don't want to be in that position. And so we want to know a person's life before they become a member of the church. And we require that members pledge themselves to personal holiness. And then fourth, though, we talked about baptism. We're added to the church through baptism. Uh, baptism is an act of obedience. It is a command. We are told to repent and believe. And then immediately following that is the command to be baptized. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached his great message. And they said, they were convicted, and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And if a person won't be baptized, then he is disobedient. It's defiance. And so that person could not be a member of the church. But we find today that baptism is downplayed. Many churches don't even talk about it any longer. I even know some Baptist churches that really don't emphasize baptism. Seems strange, but they don't. And so thus we have this unbiblical epidemic of unbaptized Christians. Now, I want to go on this evening to talk to you about another aspect of church membership, and that is admission to membership. How do you actually get into the church? Well, we do have the qualifications, and once you have those, how do you actually get into the church? Well, there's an interesting point that's made by Hiscox, who said that although church membership is one of the most blessed privileges that a person can have, it's not to be attended by great ceremony. The Bible doesn't give us any procedures for induction of people into church membership. There's no elaborate ceremony that's given. Certainly we don't find that there's any candle lighting that's done. There's no waving of censers. There is no smoke of incense. There's no procession made. There isn't a parade. It's a very humble affair. The glory belongs to Christ in church membership. And so we don't necessarily heap accolades upon a person who becomes a member of the church. So attendance, or rather admission, I should say, to the, to the Lord's church is a very low key in a Baptist church. We do rejoice when a person comes and wants to be a part of our membership, but we don't have a cake. We don't have a party for that. There, there are some things, though, that we do have to do. We, we don't have a great ceremony that takes place, but there has to be something that we do when people have met the requirements. In some way, we have to admit that person into the fellowship of the church. Now, in our church, we bring a person before the church. You've witnessed this many times. I stand down here with a person who wants to become a member. I, I introduce them to you. I tell you about their desire of membership, if they're coming to us by transfer, by statement of faith, or by their baptism. But I want to tell you how we get to that point. How do, how do we ever get to the point that we're standing right here to introduce someone to the church body that wants to become a member? Well... How do we get them before the church? I will say this, that first of all, people sometimes are very, very nervous about that. They're nervous about coming in front of the church. Some of them are nervous about their baptism. Uh, go to getting over there and going through that, have everybody watch them. I always tell people there's no reason to be self-conscious about it because there isn't anyone who has a greater thrill when someone becomes a member of the church than this body of Christians. We love it when somebody wants to become a member. We're joyous about that. So there's no reason to be self-conscious about it. No need to be nervous. But how, how, what's the process? What do we go through? 
Well, some people would be much more comfortable if, was, if admittance into the church was a very private affair. That if all they needed to do was to come in my office and they would tell me what they desire. They want to become a member of the church. I hear that and so I go over to my little machine on my desk and I stamp out a membership card and hand it to them and say, Now you are a member of Berean Baptist Church. Lots of people would prefer that. It would be so easy. But we can't do it that way. But we do start in my office. Every person who becomes a member of our church starts with a meeting in my office. And we sit down. There are questions that are asked. I want to hear a testimony of their faith. I want to know how the person came to know Christ so there are no mistakes about what salvation is. Do they really understand how a person is saved, so I need to question that. If they have been baptized, then I want to know about their understanding of it. And if they desire to be baptized, certainly I want to know, do they understand what baptism is all about? What's the purpose of this? Why are we doing it? But if someone comes to us and they've already been baptized, I want to know, who baptized you? What is the authority for your baptism? And then I want to know about their experience of Christian, their Christian life. And so in this interview, what I want to hear and determine is a credible profession of faith. Now, as the pastor of the church, the church trusts me to be able to conduct that interview, that I know what I'm doing when I do it. And so when I've heard all this information, I'm able to make a recommendation to the church. At times, deacons may do the initial interview, but always it comes down to this. That person is going to end up in my office and we'll go over all of the qualifications for membership. But the decision about whether a person can become a member of the church is not mine. Now, I might determine in the interview that the person doesn't understand or that qualifications haven't been met. And because of that, we never get this far to get a recommendation for membership. That happens But that's not my decision to make if a person meets all of the qualifications. If that has been determined, it's not my decision that a person can get into the church. Now, some churches do that. The pastor is the one who admits people into church membership. I don't think that's right. I'm one member of this body. And it's the church that has the right to decide who is going to become a member of it. Who will be assimilated into this body of Christians. That is a church decision. And that's why we bring a person before the church and present them to you for membership. So you can decide if you want that person to be a member of this church. So that next step is then that we bring the person before the church. The membership decides. I come with a recommendation... If I didn't recommend it, the person wouldn't get that far. But because I do recommend it, and the church trusts that recommendation, without fail, I can tell people that come before the church, confidently I can say, you're going to get in. I know how this vote's going to go. You're going to get in. I've never seen anyone rejected using that method. And that might lead us to believe that the vote is just a formality. uh, That I am actually the de facto authority for admission into the church. It might seem that way, but there's still this possibility that something could be wrong, that maybe you know something about a person who's come for membership that I don't know. Maybe I didn't get the truth in the interview, and then you're able to ask questions. You're able to object if you need to, because you need more information about it. Now, uh, if you know something that I don't know, then certainly I, I, I would want to hear that. 
a few weeks ago, well, it's more than a few weeks. It's, it's been several months ago. Uh, I had a person who came to me. We, we just presented someone for uh, baptism, and the person came to me later and and said, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we should have done that. It was a young person, and uh, this person said, I saw this young person not paying attention in church. And so I questioned whether he was really sincere about his desire to become a member, whether he's saved, and so on. And that's a person's right to object. Uh, but I will say this, that if... It came to people paying attention in church, whether you could be a member for doing that, I'd be plucking a lot of names off of the membership rolls because people don't pay attention. Now, some will tell me, well, I I can listen with my eyes closed. And they kind of shift over in the pew and almost fall out into the floor. And they tell me they're still listening. And they'll go, good sermon when they go out. And they have this special Holy Spirit gift of listening that I don't have. And so I I thank the Lord that people do have that, apparently, that you can listen while you're asleep. So, uh, anyway, we have to get the person up here for a vote. And if you're serious enough about membership, then you should be willing to stand the test of your confession. Now, if someone did have an objection, I haven't seen one yet, but if someone did have an objection, then you ought to be resolved enough and right enough about your confession to have it examined. But I will tell you that after 56 years of the business of doing this uh, and in the Baptist church and seeing hundreds of applications for church membership, I have yet to see anyone lose the vote. Now, there are some churches that are more rigid than what I've just described, that if you're going to become a member of the church, that you have to take a membership class. Maybe that class takes several weeks, sometimes even several months to become a member. And I understand the reasons for that, and I think that it is a model that can work for people that are saved and coming from churches that might not have doctrine that is exactly like ours. So you might want to instruct that person a little bit further before you made them members, and that's what these churches have in mind. But I don't think that it ought to be done in in the case of someone who comes for baptism and church membership. I'm not going to subject a person to six weeks of a membership class in order to be baptized because I don't think that's the biblical model. In the New Testament, you find people saved and some of them baptized in the next few minutes. Um, We're not always able to do that because we don't always have water in the baptistry. But um, I I think waiting weeks and months to baptize someone is not the right thing to do. So I... Uh, I've never been a member member of a church that actually operated in that way. But uh, in in some cases, I think it can work. But I prefer to do it the way that we do it, that if a person comes for membership, I go through the interview, I ask him all the questions, and if there's some areas of misunderstanding, if that person says to me, I am willing to be taught and I'm willing to... uh, learn the church statement of faith and accept those doctrines, then I say, well, we can take that person in and begin to teach them. Well, the next thing that we need to look at is ways of admission into the church. How do you actually get in? Well, we talked about this vote thing and all of that, but but what what about getting into the church itself? There are different, actually different methods that you can get into the church. Now, the first one would be by baptism. And I think we've been very clear about this, the necessity of every person who is a member of the church to be baptized. Now, as a separate note then, baptism is the original way into the church. No one ever gets into the church without baptism. A profession of faith is not enough. 
You must have a profession of faith, but you must be baptized because baptism is the door of entrance into the church. We take that from Acts 2.41, that believers were baptized and added to the church. And so when a person comes and he says, well, I want to become a member, I do always have to ask them about baptism. And if there is no baptism, or if the baptism is wrong... That is, there's something wrong with the mode of baptism, something wrong with the authority of baptism, something wrong with the timing of the baptism. For instance, well, I got baptized after or before I was saved. Well, that's a baptism that doesn't count. And so we would have to tell that person, you must come under the authority of this church and receive baptism at our hand. But there's an interesting scenario that arises in this when... uh, You talk about baptism being a church ordinance, and only the church has the authorized or is authorized to to baptize, then what do you do in the case of of missionaries that baptize converts on the foreign field? And uh, what what do you do about the authority of that? And where, where do they actually become members if being baptized is admittance into the church? Well, we we have an answer for that. First of all, every missionary that we support must have a sending church. And that sending church is the one who has the authority to tell that man that he can preach the gospel of Christ and that he can baptize and he can organize new churches. And so when he baptizes someone on on the field out in a foreign country, the ones that he baptizes come under the watch care of the church that authorized him to do the baptizing. Or that sending church has the authority over those converts. Now, they may never meet that convert. They may never see them. But still, they have the authority, and they maintain that authority until such time as there are enough converts, they can be, they can be organized into a new church. But the initial step would always be baptism. Now, in the New Testament times, a person was likely to remain a member of the same church for all of his life. There weren't many churches in towns. There was usually one church, and uh, people didn't have the option of finding another one. If they didn't like the one that they were in, find one that's that's more my cup of tea. You didn't really have that option to do that, and people didn't travel like they do today as much, and so if you were a member of a church, you stayed in that church. But today we have thousands of churches, we have a mobile society. Uh, Christians crisscross towns. They go across states. They move to other countries or across the United States. And so uh, they have to move into a different church. So how do you get into a different church? You're, you're a member of this church, for instance, but you move someplace else. How do you get into another church? How do you change membership from one congregation to another? Well, things are a little bit more complicated now because there are so many churches that are in doctrinal error. Some churches, many churches, are not faithful to all of the Word of God. Many churches no longer teach the depths of the Word of God so that the training in those churches is insufficient. There may be other problems that arise that aren't corrected. And because of those kinds of issues, because people do move, because a Christian might find there's a problem with the church that they're in, that they want to go to a different church. So how do you make that move to another city? You've got this need to get out of the church that you're in. How are you going to do that uh, if a church has problems? How are you going to get out of the church that you're in and become a member of a different church? 
Well, in the case of a, of a simple move, there's usually not a problem with that because churches can cooperate with one another by our second method, and that is by letters of recommendation. A recommendation for membership from the church that you are in. Now, a letter of recommendation is for a person that's leaving a church in good standing, and he goes to another church, uh, and the church that he was in grants a letter of release and then gives them a letter that approves that person for membership based upon his good standing in his church. Now, when I was growing up, that was always the practice. There were many churches that were in our fellowship in our town. It's not like, it's not like here, in, here in this area, Santa Rosa area, where it's hard to find another Baptist church, a good Baptist church. In, in our area, there were many, many good Baptist churches. And we were in, um, in the practice of exchanging letters between us, these letters of recommendation. And we were very serious about that. If a person came to us for membership and they couldn't secure a letter of recommendation from their previous church, they could not get in. We wouldn't accept them. If there's some sort of a disciplinary issue or some other problem, if, you can't, if you're not recommended, you can't get into another church. That was done for the protection of each of the churches. And if one of these churches in our fellowship took a member in without that recommendation then fellowship between the two churches would be broken. And sometimes that would lead to even not accepting their baptisms any longer as being valid baptisms. Now, we might question whether that is a right move or not, and sometimes I do. But really, the bottom line issue here is actually baptism. That is the real key. Because if a baptism can't be accepted, then church membership certainly cannot be accepted. Uh, uh, cannot be accepted. So we can't recognize it. Now, admittedly, things can get complicated on this issue. There are many, many questions that are raised. My purpose tonight is not to get deep into those issues, but if you do have questions about it, you wonder about these things, I'm happy to talk about it because we do have answers for them. So if a person was in trouble with one church, the only way that he could get into a new church was to go back to his first church and make things right. If there's a disciplinary issue, he would have to go back to the first church and uh, repent of his sin. Now, we're talking about churches that are in fellowship with each other. We know each other. We respect the authority of the churches. So, you would have to go back to that church and repent of your sin and then secure your letter of recommendation, then come back, and then we would uh, accept the letter from that other church. So, the transfer of letters between churches kept churches in harmony and in good fellowship. It was a matter of respect it protected churches from taking in troublemakers. And I'll add this as well. I've, I've already sort of said this, that letters that are received only take place, and granted, they only take place between churches that are of like faith and order. Not, not any others, just those of like faith and order. So again, the key here of acceptance is a person's baptism. Now, since church membership is initiated by baptism, we could never accept a baptism that is not authorized. So a person comes to our church with infant baptism. Well, first, they would be coming from a church not of like faith and order. That's one issue, maybe the biggest one here. The other one is it's an infant baptism. We don't even recognize it as baptism. So we couldn't take that person into the church. But we also have the case of churches that immerse. Uh, many, many other churches do immerse 
But we're not going to take baptisms that come from Assemblies of God churches. We don't take them from Pentecostal churches and others like them because we do not respect their authority to baptize. If we can't, again, we can't accept the baptism, we can't take them into membership. So those are people that we give baptism through the Berean Baptist Church. Now, sending and receiving letters makes sense when churches are in close fellowship. So if someone moves across the city, across the state or the country, and churches know each other, that's great. When you can hand back and forth letters of recommendation, I think that is the best possible thing that can happen. But things are different now than they were then. I'll come back to that in just a moment and we'll discuss it further. But before we look at that, you might wonder, where, where in the Bible do we get the authority for the transfer of letters? And we have to be honest about that, that we don't see it as a formal method in the Scriptures, but it's implied in such a way that we can extrapolate it, uh, that it's logical to use it in the case of church membership. Now, let's take a look at that. Take your Bible and turn to the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And in this chapter, Paul discusses the collection of an offering from churches in Galatia and Corinth. And that offering was going to be sent to poor saints that were in Jerusalem. And the question here is, who's going to carry that offering? Who can you trust to take that offering? And so we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse number 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. So letters of approval were to be given. A recommendation had to be made to Paul about those who would carry this offering, that they would be trustworthy men, of course, who wouldn't steal the money. And so Paul said, before I send this money with anyone, give me letters of recommendation, people that you trust. Now, if you'll turn a few more pages over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and in verse number 1, 2 Corinthians 3, verse number 1, here Paul says, do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? Now, that verse tells us that the churches were evidently in the habit of passing letters between them that proved that a person who carried them was a Christian. And we say, why do they need this? Well, because there was a lot of persecution in those days. It may be that someone wanted to infiltrate the church and they're going to turn them in and uh, they're going to work against the church. And so they want to know that a person coming to them was someone who they could trust. Or it could be because of false prophets. There were many of those. And so they would want to know, is this person a good person that we can take in? So a letter of recommendation would say, well, yes, you can trust this person. You, you, can, you can take our word for this, that they are a true believer. So one church then would vouch to the other church for that person's credentials. Now what Paul is saying there in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 1 is that obviously he doesn't need that kind of a letter. 
That's because he founded those churches. So he doesn't need a a letter of recommendation from anybody. But Paul talks about such things as this because this is just another case where where he asserts his authority, uh, that he has the right to do these things. But there was a time when Paul himself needed someone to vouch for him. That's when he was first saved. And before he was able to go to Jerusalem, he had to have somebody tell the people in Jerusalem that he was okay. He was before a persecutor. He was the chief enemy of the church. And they strongly suspected that what he was about to do was just find out where they were so he could haul them away, as the 8th chapter says of Acts, verse number 1, I believe it is. So he could just haul these people away. So Paul had to have somebody vouch for him. That person was Barnabas. Barnabas told the Christians in Jerusalem that Paul's okay, He's a good fellow, he is a believer, and he explained to them what Paul had done. You can find that in Acts chapter 9 and verses 26 and 27. So people going from one church to another needed proof that they were really disciples. And so they would have these letters of recommendation as their proof. Now all of that works very well in a tight-knit community. When there are few churches that you're dealing with, it works well. But we live in a different world now. There are thousands of Baptist churches. We don't have the ability to check all of them out. We have no way of knowing what they believe. We don't know if their letters of recommendation are good. We don't know the church. We don't know the people that they're sending. The letter of recommendation doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. Now, what sometimes churches will do, and I've done this in the past, I've I've said, well, maybe we can accept the letter of recommendation. You send me your statement of faith. I'll look that over, and I'll see if that statement of faith is sufficient. But that doesn't always work either, because there are people who have statements of faith that are almost identical to ours, but they don't understand them. And they they don't know what they mean at all, and if they did know, they wouldn't follow it. So you can't count on that. That's another subject for another time, another problem we can deal with in another message. And for that reason, we hardly ever exchange letters with other churches. And so if you move someplace else and you are in good standing, we will send a letter if you request it. I I prefer that we could do that. And it's up then to the church that you go to to grant or rather to receive that letter and say that you can become a member. But we don't usually write for a letter for people that are coming this way. And that's because we just don't know those churches. And so what good is their letter of recommendation? We don't really know enough about them to have confidence in them. Now, hardly ever anybody ever does that anymore. I, I'm old school. Uh, I'm used to this. When I came here, I wanted my old church to send a letter of recommendation for me and that the church would grant that letter when it was received. And I think that you ought to do... Uh, I hope nobody's leaving. But uh, I think that you ought to do this out of respect for your church. That if you go someplace else, that you would inform us that you would... Ask for a letter of recommendation to the church that you're going to. Now, let me also add this because I think it's, it's appropriate. I'll talk more about it next time. You can't get out of the church by resigning your membership and walking away. There is no provision in the scripture for someone who says, well, I just don't want to be a member any longer, so please rescind my membership, cancel my membership card. No, you can't do that. There's no provision in the Bible for that. So if you move away, something has to be done with your membership. It can't just sit here without you being here. 
And so the church has to take some action over it. Our church constitution says that what you should do uh, when you move to another area, that as soon as possible, as soon as practical, you should move your membership to a church of like faith and order. And then you advise us that has been done. And if you don't do that, then the church has to take action. If you go to a church that is of not like faith and order, you'll be dismissed from our church fellowship for what we might call doctrinal desertion. Sometimes we may call that spiritual adultery, uh, just as a person who's guilty of rejecting the truth in order to follow a false doctrine. Now, if not that, if those aren't issues, then you just don't tell us what you've done, then you can be dismissed for non-attendance. And I will have to say that being dismissed for non-attendance is a dishonorable discharge. It's not as bad as some other things, but it's a dishonorable discharge. And so not to do something about your membership is to disrespect the authority of this body. Most Christians don't think about that. This issue doesn't come up in most churches. We think about it, and we do something about it. You can't just hang your membership out there on nothing. Well, you say, well, how long do I have to move my membership if I leave here? Now, I'm not giving you, I said, I'm not giving you all these things so you can plan to go somewhere, all right? So if you're planning to go somewhere, you just assume it can't be done, all right? You just can't do that. So how long do you have to move your membership? Well, it's case by case, depending on how much difficulty there is. The maximum, according to our church bylaws, is six months. But we do extend that if we need to. What if there is no church of like faith and order where you go? My first comment is, you made a big mistake. You shouldn't have left. But I'll leave that there for a minute. You can just let that go. It is possible to keep your membership in the church under certain circumstances. If you were to move to an area where you cannot find a church of like faith and order, you could remain a member here under the watch care of this church. But there's a little caveat in this. And that is if you're very serious about that, you still love the church, and you still realize that you're a member of it, then what you would be required to do is send your tithes and offerings to this church. Because no matter where you are in the world, the church that you are a member of is to receive your tithes and offerings. It's owed to the church or given to the church that you are a member of. So if you were serious, you got hung out on a situation like that, then we would know that you're serious if I keep seeing that tithe check come in every week. And you'd say, well, that's membership for a fee. Not really. Um, Not really. It's just... That's what the Lord expects for church members to tithe. And that's a, that would show how much you truly do care about the church that you are a member of. Now, I have a lot of summary notes on, on different aspects of all of this. Uh, but I do want to consider, and uh, I think those, those other things are very interesting for us to talk about. And we do have one other method of admission into the church that uh, we have to have and we don't have time to talk about that one tonight. I will take it up next time. Things like, what do you do if there isn't a letter? What do you do if the church that you were a member of disbanded? What if the church that you were a member of, well, you've been out of that church for a long time, and, and you've been removed from the membership there. Maybe you're away from that church, and a long way away. You can't go back with repentance, and there's no way to work those things out. Maybe you've been subject to discipline in another church, and you can't go there to make things right with them. But you are repentant about it, and you confess that. 
what do you do then? Could, could you get into another church? Well, there is a method that takes care of all these problems because we do have all these other situations that arise that have to be taken care of in order for people to get into the church when there's these kinds of problems. We're going to talk about that method next time. And uh, we, we, we fully recognize there are people that have been in churches that have very serious problems, and it doesn't do any good for us to write for a letter from them. We wouldn't accept it anyway. Uh, people got out of churches in the wrong way, or the church did something to them that was wrong. The church itself is wrong. See, here's the thing. We don't have the ability to check out every case. There's just no way that we can sit in judgment over so many different churches out there that have so many different types of practices and things that have gone on between people and their churches. We just don't have the ability to judge all those. So the best thing that we can do is to listen to this person's story, be convinced that the story is good, and then we have this other method of taking them in. We'll talk about it the next time. Just nuts and bolts issues, mechanical issues about the church. That's what this is about tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time that we've been able to spend talking about these things. Um, we do need to know these. At some point, I'll be gone. Others in the church will be gone. And uh, the membership of the church has to know how these things work. Uh, how do you work these things out? What what? What is our teaching on this? And so it's important for, from time to time for us to make these things known so people do understand them. So, Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being in your church, to be a part of this, this body of Christ that serves you here in Roner Park, California. We just thank you, Lord, that you saved us and uh, we are baptized into your church where we can serve you. Be with your people, Lord. We thank you for each and every one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org